Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes psychologist and author Dr. Lou Casolino for part one of their two-part conversation of his vast career, including his latest book, The Development of a Therapist. Part two will be released on Tuesday, July 6th. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you from here at Chaddock, and excited to introduce our guest for today. I think it's going to be a very familiar name to many of you, and if you aren't aware of his work, I hope that you will look into him after this podcast. So my guest for today is Dr. Lou Casolino, and he has a diverse clinical background and multiple research interests. He holds degrees in philosophy, theology, and clinical psychology. Is that not a great combination? His interests are in the areas of the synthesis of neuroscience with psychotherapy, education management, and leadership. He is the author of 10 books, including The Neuroscience of Psychotherapy, The Neuroscience of Human Relationships, Timeless and Attachment-Based Teaching, The Making of a Therapist, and Why Therapy Works. He has also authored and co-authored articles and book chapters on child abuse, schizophrenia, education, language, and cognition. He lectures around the world on brain development, evolution, and psychotherapy. And he also maintains a clinical and consulting practice in Los Angeles. So, Stay tuned. He is going to be coming right up and he is going to be speaking with us about two of his books, The Making of a Therapist and a newer release, The Development of a Therapist. And we are going to be talking about that from an attachment perspective. So stay tuned. So hi, Dr. Casolino. It's so great to have you here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Uh, Thanks. Nice to be with you, Karen. Yeah. So I'm really eager to talk with you about um, two of your books, although you have many wonderful ones that everybody needs to, to look into, but The Making of a Therapist and The Development of a Therapist. So could you just tell the listeners like a little bit about the history of those books and why you even thought it was necessary to write them? That's a big question, um, but a good one. So I, I, the making of a therapist, I think, was published in 2004, the first time. And I had been teaching at that point for about 15 or 16 years in master's and doctoral programs um, about, you know, young therapists, therapists that are, were seeing their patients for the first time. And I remembered how... I don't know, traumatic is probably a strong word, but I remember how, how challenging it was to see my first clients. And it wasn't just challenging because of all of the external things I had to remember and think about and worry about, but there was also this incredible emotional turmoil and self-doubt and um, 
fear and the voices of shame and you know on and on like there there was like it was it was like being caught in a in a storm for me and i the more i taught as the years went by the more i realized that you know i always assumed that i was just crazy and that's why i made such a big deal out of it because my classmates all seemed to be handling it much better than i did but it turned out that they were you know they were as frightened as i was we were all trying to look professional and so then teaching uh, teaching classes for beginning therapists for a decade or two really um, made me realize that everyone was in the same boat and there was something about the books that that we were using by seasoned clinicians that made it look like it wasn't that hard or it wasn't that challenging. And so I thought, well, maybe it would be helpful to write a book that was sort of from my heart and from my own personal experience, as well as trying to uh, let people in on what I think I wish I had known back yes. then. Yes, yes. So it was all of that put together. That's the background. And... Um, yeah, and it's been over the years. It's been probably my best-selling book, um, and it's been I, you know, every day it seems someone contacts me and says they they used it in a course that they had. Yes, well, you know, I was thinking the the more recent edition or not edition, the more recent book, the development of a therapist. I know part of um, your the impetus for writing that was like maybe going more in depth, and that the first book, um, the making of a therapist, was maybe more basic. But as I reread that first book for this podcast, I thought, oh, I don't, I don't think it's basic. I think so many of these things are still missing um, in how we're training therapists. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the it's kind of that must be my um, my background in studying Buddhism is the I think the simplest things really are the deepest things. And so while I wrote the, the uh, making of a therapist uh, with that basic voice, I realized that, you know, I could personally read that book myself every three or six months, you know, year after year and just be reminded of the basics. Just like if you're if you play golf or any sport, we lose the basics. We drift away from them. And so I think right. that book was that the, the points in that book are, are really useful at any point in your career. The development of the therapist, the follow up really is for me, um, it was you know, A, with the thing, it was the things that I didn't want to go into too far into depth to overwhelm beginners. And then, of course, over the last 15 or so years, there have been plenty of developments, I think, that are, you know, were important to add to it, um, especially this, you know, what we're going through now, which is the uni universality of Internet addiction, um, which is one piece that uh, wouldn't have been an issue back in the, you know, back at the beginning, and also I think the um, the flooding the flooding of the market of every possible training program for counselors and there, where there's no the only driving force is money. There's no real coherent training profile anymore, and there's certainly no demand or expectation that therapists receive their own therapy. So the field is really getting. Um, I don't know if you say I don't know if it's if it's getting watered down or if it's going astray or I don't know how to characterize it. But there really is a need for, um, you know, for, for some sort of accountability now. 
that we're not we're not uh, seeing. Yes, yes, and um, we've become so technique oriented that it sometimes feels like we're missing the whole foundation or something. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, a lot of my time now is spent supervising clinicians who are five, you know, like uh, two, five, 10 years out who have the realization that they don't really know what they're doing, even though they've been using a technique, you know, over and over and over again. Um, things go sideways often because they don't have the basic foundation for what psychotherapy is, you know, sort of the, the, the depth aspects of psychotherapy. They think that you do psychotherapy to someone as opposed to doing it with someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was um, one of the things that I looking at my notes about when you talked about therapy being um, a deep connection with each other rather than, you know, going in and doing something to the other. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, strongly ties into, you know, this is the Attachment Theory in Action podcast and looking at the one's own attachment history. Mm-hmm. And I think that this plays very strongly in into some of what you're talking about. I have lots of thoughts about that, but just would you want to make just some general comments about the therapist's own history and how you think that impacts the becoming of a therapist? Well, I think you know your um, your own your own attachment history serves as a lens, which constructs your perception of other people it constructs it constructs your perception of the world and so how you view things or how you what you've experienced really determines how you experience your clients and if you haven't if you haven't uh you know been through therapy if you haven't spent uh you know a considerable amount of time in self-exploration and and work on those you know on those particular issues then there's a there's a prism there that's distorting what you're seeing that you're completely unaware of right and i'm not saying that you can ever get rid of all biases but i think that we're we're at least we should at least take a response take responsibility for being aware of our biases and to be able to out ourselves to ourselves and sometimes even to our clients you know, like a very, you know, there are there are situations where I know we're walking around areas that have been um, challenges for me, and I can never really assume, even though I've been through all kinds of therapies, that anything is resolved. You never really know, right? So sometimes I just have to fess up and say, "Listen, this is my perspective, but I really need you to give me. I really need to to hear from you what you think of this perspective. Does it just sound?" Like, you know, does it sound like me or does it apply to you? Or let's be, let's co-construct this narrative. Mm. You know, let's figure this out together because we're stepping on thin ice for me here. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. So you mentioned a minute ago um, therapists being in their own therapy. And... You know, I know from some of my mentors who are in their 70s and 80s, that was it was standard practice. Like you you didn't become a therapist without being in your own therapy. 
that was part of the training process. I mean, I would like to hear some of your thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think the um, I think it it used to be and it still should be. The problem is now that um, because because there are I don't know how many tens of thousands of therapists are churned out of the various uh, training programs every every month. Um, schools are schools are profit making. You know, they're 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 profit centers. That's why they, that's why most schools exist now, and they can't take all the money you have for tuition, and also demand that you go to therapy. And so it's a business decision based on their part. And um, it, I don't think it serves the field or our practitioners or our clients at all. Mm. You know, and I think the um, and most, you know, most of us, most therapists grow up in families where they're sort of the the affect regulator. You know, they play the role for the most part in their families of the caretakers. And then they parlay their, you know, their defenses into a career. So therapists are the most difficult clients to treat because they're the ones that are often the most skeptical about whether it can help them or not. Not at a superficial level, but at a deeper level because their attachment schema are the, you know, so, sort of in the Alice Miller model of being the pseudo adult, you know, and, and they hide behind the role of a caretaker and even using Alice Miller's terms again, you know, they, we suffer from double amnesia. We forget we have needs and then we forget we've forgotten. Mm. So then if, if therapy is sold to most therapists as something you do to clients, that fits right into their narrative and right into their avoidant attachment schema. Yes. Yes. You've been teaching therapists for how many years now? Um, well, I think I started at Pepperdine in 1986, so a while. Yes. And as you've watched these cohorts of therapists come through and, you know, been teaching and um, looking at texts that are being used and looking at the overall training, Tell us about some of the evolution that you've witnessed, both good and bad, <laughs> that we should be thinking about as therapists. Well, I mean, you know, certainly you see, um, you know, one of the things that, that you notice once you've been around for a long time is that every, you know, every 10 years or so, there's a new sort of um, diagnosis that everyone is focused on. Right. So it's sort right. of like the diagnosis du jour right. or, or whatever it is. Right. And so you know, we've gone through, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the sort of the, the awakening of the awareness of child abuse. And we went through borderline and narcissism. And so, you know, every every 10 years or so. And now, and, and now it's, uh, you know, the, the diagnoses, you know, are more around um you know, I think narcissism is big now. Sociopathy. I can't tell you how many clients come in and say, hey, my husband or my wife is a sociopath. So that's that's a new <laughs> that's a new one, probably on the on the heels of popular, you know, like pop psych books that come out. Right. Or right. and perhaps 
Related to the political climate or something. Yeah, I mean, everyone's comparing their partner to, pre- you know, to former President Trump and everybody thinks, oh, my God, I live with one, too. Right. So you've got that. You've got that piece of it, you know, that piece going on. Um, and then you see also the trend in treatment, you know, and then it's like uh, one of the one of the things that is so um, that I that I have to, like, just uh, hold my tongue on is mindfulness, you know, um, actually, you know, having studied Buddhism my whole life, mindfulness is not is not new information, uh, you know, for me. Um, and the so the, the whole thing with mindfulness is that uh, students come in and they like that they feel comfortable with it and they think that they can use it on everyone. And they don't realize how limited a, an intervention that is with people that have anxiety disorders and character disorders and all sorts of other things, but they never spend the time learning about those things. And mm-hmm. so again, it's like um, it's like having one tool in your toolbox and having a treatment that and having a you know a, a perspective to therapy that is technique based as opposed to you know broad uh, a broad understanding of how the brain and the mind and and you know sociality work. Work, which um, a lot of people, unfortunately, don't seem to have the patience. Um, it may be the patience. It may be the capacity. I don't know. They want quick answers. And yes. uh, it could be also, you know, with uh, now that everyone's addicted to the Internet and our attention spans have gone to practically nothing, it could be that the type of sustained focus and attention that's required for learning these things just isn't available to people anymore. So that's another possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh, there's so many important nuggets in what you just said that another thing I've heard brought up about mindfulness from people of color is that you can't, some of these, like you mentioned societal things, like some of these things that are going on culturally that would be causing anxiety, fear, that you, you can't mindfulness yourself out of, of some of this. It's almost disrespectful <laughs> to just think, oh, I'll just apply this to everyone. Right, right. I mean, some, you know, and not all problems are solvable in the, in the therapy room. I mean, some, you know, some problems are social and political problems, and you have to uh, fight them at that level. Uh, you know, I, I'm ambivalent about helping people in therapy cope with racism. I would much rather we go out and end it. <laughs> you know, that yeah. Means, to yeah. me, that's a that's a that's in a political arena. As a therapist, I don't think I have any. Um, I mean, I may have more expertise at understanding like the biological and historical origins of racism, but I'm certainly no more equipped than anyone else is to, uh, to, you know, to to take the action that's required to to fight it. I think that's something that we all have to do just as human beings. What an important distinction. Yes. Yeah, I've run into that, you know, when I've talked because I um, I have an, uh, a model of how prejudice evolved and how and how it functions, you know, based on neural processing and, and, and the way our brains have been shaped to uh, to construct reality. You know, but the feedback I get mostly like from people of color and, and others as well is that, you know, we don't want you to under- we don't want help understanding it. We want to change it. Right. right? And my response is, well, as a scientist. You know, what I want to do is understand it, but I'm with you all the way as far as changing it. Let's do that, too. Yes. Let's understand it and, and maybe understanding it will help us change it. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, 
what else are you seeing in terms of, I, I think I, um, I don't know if I, it was a lecture of yours I was listening to or one of your books and you talked about the almost needing to change how you viewed, and, and this gets back into the therapist's own history and some of those things that we were talking about, almost having to change how you viewed your students rather than students almost as clients that they were perhaps not perhaps they were coming with their own trauma history. So like, why was that? Why did that change have to happen? Like how, how are these people showing up in your classes differently or how is the training different or what, what caused that? Cause I found that fascinating when you said that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, um, start with my experience. Um, my my experience of being a student in the 70s and, and the first half of the 80s was that the teachers knew what they were talking about. And I went to school in order to be not only taught, but also tested and challenged and pushed. And if and if something that they said upset me or, or whatever, or, or they they said I was inadequate in some way. Um, it wasn't my job to blame them. It was my job to figure out, well, how do I respond? How high, sh how high should I jump? How much therapy should I get? What book should I read? How many more nights of sleep should I lose in order to meet your expectations? And so that was sort of the academic world that I grew up in. And, um, and I, really, I really thrived in. I mean, it wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. But I think it really is what allowed me to go from having, you know, two parents who didn't graduate from, you know, the high school and, you know, not growing up with any books in the house and, and no one really being educated around me. That's what I needed to get me to the point where I could compete and talk to people like yourself and other educated people so I could be part of the discussion. And so that's how I grew up. And, and so, you know, in my early years of teaching, I took the same attitude with my students, right? That, you know, your job is to figure like I've gone through the, I've, I've run the gauntlet mm -hmm. and now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna demand of you to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And what I found was when I was teaching, you know, back in the 80s, it was, it kind of worked, but by the time the 90s came, students were just coming with their lawyers and, you know, and, and saying, you know, you're triggering me, you're making me uncomfortable. How can you expect us to do so much work? And so and the administration, because the school is a profit center, the administration would back us up or back them up and say, you've got to make it easy. We don't want this stuff out there. We don't want people not to come to our school because the school is too hard. And so the notion of the university then shifted in my in my mind, it was sort of like a yeshiva, like it was it was really a place where we all challenged each other and argued and pushed each other to grow. And then it became the students shifted in my mind from being students to being customers. So then there were like there was a number of years where I treated them as customers to try to make them happy. But even making them happy wasn't wasn't enough because then they got triggered. And, and the lower the requirements were to get into programs, you know, when everyone who wanted to be a therapist could, could get into a training program, then you really had people that were coming to, to train primarily who needed therapy, but weren't getting it. 
And so the classes then turned into group therapy sessions. So, you know, over the decades, there's been this evolution, at least from my mind, what I what I went through as a student to seeing students as customers to now seeing them as clients. Right. And now we've got this other this sort of on the 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 social activism piece of this and the anti-racism piece of this, which I think is very important socially. Right. It is very important for us to like decolonize our syllabi and really question the, you know, the sort of the inherent biases and prejudices in our science. Yes. In our, all of like you said before, like mindfulness, like how does that work? How does that work in, you know, on the streets? Right. Probably doesn't. So that I think is really important. But now we have also this other alternative agenda where students are expecting us to be involved in these other processes, which I'm all for. But it's another thing that is, in a sense, is taking a step away from academic rigor, at least from my perspective. Right. There's some academic rigor in it and there's academic exploration, which is very important. Right. All of the, you know, the, the sort of the transcultural notions, most of even, you know, even attachment theory is a white middle class perspective. Right. Attachment is a, is an, a, an adaptational process that changes depending on environmental resources. Mm-hmm. You see this in animals, you see this in humans. Mm-hmm. And of course, that part of it is important to teach. But then there's a lot of academic rigor from the research that kind of gets left behind. So it's really difficult to figure out, you know, how do we how do we do all of this stuff? How do I do therapy and social active, you know, activity and serve as a, uh, a, a you know, serving the public as part of, uh, you know, students as consumers and then teach them in the meantime. Right. It's an interesting kind of challenge. How are you doing it? I don't know. <laughs> it's, too, it's too much I mean, to do. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, one thing that I've done is that I've stopped giving grades. Like I give everyone A's now, right? Because okay. because what I found is that um, there's so much grade inflation. Everyone, every student comes into class thinking that they're an A student. And if you don't give them an A, all they do is spend their time arguing you about every point on every exam, right? Oh. Plus, it, plus it puts me in the position of being an evaluator. And the sort of the therapeutic supportive part of it, the positive attachment part of it, gets damaged by the fact that there are grades. And so I found that I've done much better after I stopped giving grades. The classes are better. Students seem to be learning better. They're more involved and interested. You know, and there are those students, there's always a percentage of students that they don't care anyway. They're just there because they don't know what else to do. Right. And those students, whether you give them grades or not, it's not going to make a difference. And so that's one adjustment I've made that seems to be working out really well. Fascinating. And, you know, another interesting thing is, and I I wasn't aware of this until relatively recently, is how many of my books are being translated into Korean and Chinese and Japanese. And um, because to me, there's a real, at least on the surface, there's a real sort of like imperfect fit between Western and Eastern cultures and the appropriateness of psychotherapy. But obviously, they're incredibly interested in it. And I don't know whether that interest is based on a misperception or um, looking up to the West as having things that are better than, I don't know what it comes from. I'm not 
you know, I'm, I'm not that schooled and at that level, but um, it's it really is interesting to see how dedicated they are to learning. And I have students now involved in trans, like on my website, I'm going to cre- uh, set up a Korean and a Chinese page for people in those countries who want to, you know, get material from me because uh, my books are available there. That's fantastic. Um, I know. That- that you know your your books are getting translated and others are getting this information and that's so good. Yeah, and it really is. I have a lot of <clears throat> excuse me. I have a lot of Chinese and Korean students, and it's so interesting and fascinating to me to watch them struggle and work on trying to make the translations. And I don't mean the language translations, but I mean the translations of worldview from their cultures uh-huh. to psychotherapy to attachment theory. Yes. You know, to all the things that we're interested in. It's just, and you know, it's going to be up to them to figure it out. I just want to support them and encourage them as much as I can. Yes. Yes. Well, listeners, um, this has been a fascinating discussion so far with Dr. Casolino about uh, the making of a therapist and his newer book, The Development of a Therapist. And I really hope you'll come back to join us next week for part two of this as we continue the conversation. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.